All right, we're continuing this morning in our uh, teaching series where we've been talking about the ministry of reconciliation and how we, we might pursue uh, this ministry that Christ has given to us. And we're going to talk more as we get closer to Easter about how Christ has reconciled us uh, and kind of really live into that, especially on Palm Sunday and Easter. Uh, but scripture tells us that we've been given this same ministry and so to seek to live at peace with one another and saying, how, how could this work today? What could this look like? How could we follow this process toward repentance and reconciliation in our lives and in our relationships today? And so I've been going way back in tradition, uh, into the Jewish uh, tradition and law uh, to follow the, the laws of repentance penned by an early rabbi and scholar, uh, Moses Maimonides, to say, hey, here, here are some of these laws of how we might pursue this work of repentance and repair toward reconciliation in our lives. So we've looked at confession uh, that first week, naming and owning our harm. We looked last week at repentance, that step two, starting to change, not just, you know, being penitent in our, on our hearts, but actually committing to turn and to change and to live differently. And this morning, step three, we're going to talk about what it looks like to accept consequences, accepting consequences and offering restitution. And this is probably the week that's closest to sort of a, an understanding of, of, of justice and our sort of pursuit of justice, of how we, how we can uh, right wrongs accept consequences and repair what was broken. Um, but in a sense of, of God's justice and how we're, we're going toward a more just world in the kingdom of God that is coming. Um, so I want to invite you to reflect with me this morning on a familiar passage of scripture as we have done, um, but to really reflect on what, how reconciliation happens in this passage. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke 15 this morning. You know, it occurred to me this week, I have a, a commentary, uh, a scripture commentary that's called Feasting on the Word. And there's places in scripture that talks about sort of feasting and eating and, and growing in maturity. But just this idea that every time we approach scripture together as a community, that, that, we, are, that we are fed that we are given uh, some sort of uh, sustenance for our faith and for our lives. I don't want us to take that lightly this morning. There's sort of a, that's a pretty, pretty amazing thing that we can open up this word and we can say, God's going to feed us this morning. Us preacher types might like to joke, some weeks it might be a four-course meal, some weeks it might be bread and water. But we're going to eat. Because <laughs> it's God's word. And hopefully this isn't the only meal you're relying on this week. But that every time we approach scripture, that we might find nourishment. And a word of hope and encouragement. So with that spirit, let's turn to Luke chapter 15. This is the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. This is Jesus' parable. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and we respond, thanks be to God. There is a whole lot that we could chew on this morning, that we could reflect and try to digest and understand, but I want to invite you with me to, to, to first, let's think about the young son and how he attempted to, to walk some of these uh, steps of repentance, of being restored back to his family. First, we need to know and really understand that there was deep harm caused. The young son, by going to his father and saying, give me my inheritance, that caused great harm. In this culture of sort of shame and honor for a, for a son, either of them, but for a, especially a young son, not the first heir, for a son to say to his father, you know, give me my, my property while the father is still living. N.T. Wright says that that would have been like looking at your father and saying, I wish you were dead. And so what would have been expected then in this culture would be for the son, or sorry, for the father to, to grow angry and, and, and to, to disown this son. For it to be like you, it is if you're like dead to me. Did you catch at the end? 
The father says, this son was dead, and now he is alive again. So it's shocking, really, that the father agrees and gives his second son part of his inheritance. It takes the son a few days to gather up all of his stuff and to go out on his journey with all that he has. It's as if he's leaving to cut all familial ties. We know that this is painful. This is hard. Harm has been caused. And we know the rest of the story. It says he squandered his property in reckless living. He went big, living large. He spent it all. And when he had nothing left, then a famine hits. And he is so hungry and he's so poor and he's so on rock bottom that he gets a job feeding pigs and he longs to be eating what the pigs are eating. And so he says, okay, he has like an aha rock bottom moment. Scripture says, and he came to himself. He came to himself. That what in the world am I doing? It's as if Joel B. Green says he, he recognizes sort of his loss and his status and, and where he now is in a social condition based on his series of actions. This is my fault. I have done this. He came to himself. That epiphany moment. And so what does he do? He decides to return home, to make a change, to return, to repent. And so here's where we see sort of these first couple of steps that we've talked about, right? The first step is confess. He goes to his father and he prepares to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He's preparing to confess to his father. There's a sense that he understands the weight of the harm that he has caused in that aha moment. This is my fault. I, I, this is a, a result of, of my actions. He understands the harm that he has caused. He acknowledges that pain of, of disowning his father, of wishing him dead, of squandering his inheritance. And, and we kind of get this sense because he says in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He understands that there's been a, a break here. A disowning, cutting of familial ties. And so that second step is repentance. He prepares to repent, to make different choices, to understand, again, that harm that he has caused. Now, repentance is not explicitly used here, that word, but we need to understand the context of Luke chapter 15, because it's actually a larger theme that Jesus is teaching on here. Luke chapter 15 begins with, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus, hearing these grumblers, these Pharisees, he sets out to teach three parables in Luke chapter 15. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. The second is the parable of the lost coin. The third is the parable of the lost son. And each time in the first two, Jesus ends the teaching. They're much shorter. And the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin ends this way. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is speaking specifically to his grumblers who are complaining and judging him for eating with sinners. And he's saying, look here. God's, the, God's like the one who's going to leave the 99 to restore the one. And when that one repents and returns home, man, there's going to be a big party. 
Take this example of this family and your shame and honor culture where you might think nothing can be redeemed here and yet a big party is going to be thrown. Such is the love and grace of our God. So there's a larger theme of repentance here. So we see this son, he confesses, he repents, he returns home. And then our third step, our theme of the day, he accepts his consequences. He says, look, I just want to serve as a servant in your house. I know I'm not worthy to be a son for that status, to receive an inheritance. I I know I've squandered that. Can I at least just be your servant? He accepts the reality of his consequences. This is that third law of repentance, accepting consequences of our action and offering restitution. That is beginning to make amends. Maimonides says this, if one injures another or curses them or plunders them or offends them in any matter, it It is ever not absolved unless they make restitution of what is owed and beg for the forgiveness of the other. That is, this is your attempt to fix what has been broken. Maybe it never can be how it once was, but there's a sense that you can restore what was lost or stolen or taken. That's restitution, the restoration of something that's lost or stolen, recompense for injury or loss. Another way we can understand this is, say, to make amends, to do something to correct a mistake that one has made or a bad situation that one has caused. This is kind of going beyond just saying, I'm sorry, but to acknowledge errors and to take action to make up for what happened in the past. We know that this is rooted in Mosaic law, in Leviticus, these Laws of repentance. Again, remember this this rabbi that I've been referencing and and studying, he's one that was attempting to make the Torah more applicable to everyday people and everyday life and everyday relationships. He knew that there were going to be rabbis who studied the scriptures and the intricacies of the law. How many of you are reading through the Bible in a year right now? Okay, are are you too Leviticus yet? Deuteronomy, woof. Yeah, thank God for scholars who are passionate about studying the law. Because this is where you get failure of nerve and you want to quit. Sharon hasn't yet. Good job, Sharon. Yeah, bread and water. There you go. There you go. But Maimonides was seeking. He said, look, I know that there are going to be all those scholarly types, but I'm trying to say what is required of you? What do you need to know? What's applicable to your life? What does this mean? And so, of course, these laws of repentance are rooted in Mosaic law. And here in Leviticus 6, we're not going to read it. Don't worry. Reference. That's teeny. Okay. In Leviticus 6, it's saying here, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith, uh, if anyone has lost or lied or swears falsely, if, if anybody sins and realizes his guilt, kind of laying out all of these, if this happens, if this happens, says in verse, uh, verse 5, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give, to, give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Okay, this is outlining the requirements of the law. 
Here it is for the sin of stealing, for the sins of cheating, for the sins of making a gain from threats or lies. Again, this is among neighbors and the family of God. If any of these things happen, this is what you should do. There's a command to make amends by returning the amount to the person, but then also adding an additional 20%. In addition, it's necessary then at the end, it says to bring an offering to the priest for this sin. It's like a trespassed offering. So that on a day of atonement, you may be atoned for this sin against your neighbor. There is a, a biblical basis in the law here, as we might say, of making amends, of an attempt to restore what one has broken. Now, we might think of it today as simply just throwing money at it, 20% of the value and add more. But it's, it's more than that. Remember, it's a, it's a heart thing, too. Daniel Ruttenberg says this, Restitution demands truly comprehending the gravity of the harm caused and humbly seeking the appropriate redress. Not throwing money at a problem to make it a go away, and in many cases, it likely involves consultation with the person or people harmed about what would feel just or what might be actually needed by the real live human being in question. One does not offer amends at the person harmed, but to them. That's the key. You don't offer it at people, but to them. And it may require a face-to-face consultation of saying how you feel harmed. Again, this is more of that exercise of really understanding the harm that was caused against a brother or sister. What would feel just to you? Maybe this is simply humbly accepting that actions have consequences. Maybe that's what it looks like. You're like, man, this is rough. This is brutal. First, you're going to make me confess. First, you're going to make me really sit in my, you know, in my mistake, make me feel lousy about it, (laughs) that I've messed up. You got to do that soul work. Look at your, look at the worst parts of yourself of why you were motivated to do certain things. If you're not feeling bad enough, you've got to commit to being different, but now you've got to own the consequences. You've got to accept that our actions sometimes do have consequences and humbly receive that. So what could this look like today? Maybe it's simply humbly receiving a rebuke from someone you are in relationship with, a correction, and just receiving that and acknowledging, yeah, you're right, I messed up. Maybe it's, it's understanding and knowing that hard work may be required to earn back a spouse's trust. Remember, this is a process over time. So you might confess, you might repent, and that takes time to prove that you are acting differently or that you are attempting to change. But accepting the consequence sometimes means you need to understand that rebuilding trust takes time. You can't rush the other person through that. You can't make that go away. You can't, you can't throw money at that one for sure. <laughs> Accepting the consequence that this is going to take some time. Maybe it looks like paying the cost that are incurred as a result of your harm. Like the injury or the pain suffered or medical costs or time away from work. Maybe it looks like in trying to reconcile with your kids, it might look like spending more time with them to make up for time that you missed earlier. 
spending intentional time with them for those missed games or or graduations or, or big events in their lives. And so there it might just look like keeping your promise to things that you committed to. If I said I'm going to show up, I'm going to show up for you. And making amends might look like keeping your promises. Or it might look like accepting a new boundary. The example that I read this week was like, okay, so say you've got to accept the consequence that because of your action or because of something that happened, you're no longer welcome at weekly game night. Okay? Making amends, accepting that consequence looks like saying, I respect that boundary. And for this amount of time, I won't... That's kind of a silly example, but you hear the accepting of a boundary that's respecting the person that was harmed. Because that's what the victim needs in that moment. Although we've really been focusing on the perpetrator as like us, the ones that have caused harm, what we need to know is that this whole process is really victim-centered. The person who was wronged, it's really about them and what, and what they need. Celebrate Recovery helps us again uh, in this instance with the principle six. Evaluate all of my relationships. Offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me and make amends for harm I've done to others, except when doing so would harm them or others. I love this. This awareness, this this other-centered approach of understanding this is what they might need or not need in the moment. So we make a list of all persons who have been harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. And it goes through a similar process that we've been talking about. Admit the hurt and the harm. Make a list of those people. Encourage one another as you're working through this really hard stuff. But no, it's not for them in the sense that we expect nothing from them in return. And do it at the right time. You know, this is the kind of silly example that we might think. If, like, say, for example, I've, um, I- I've harmed one of you by, by gossiping or by saying not nice things about you. It might cause you more harm if you hear me tell all of the things that have been said bad about you. <laughs> That's not helpful. (laughs) That's not helpful. Make amends for the harm you've done, except when doing so would harm others or harm them or others. That's the simple little example of, of gossiping, right? But there's bigger ones too. Like when the person who has caused harm, when it's a situation of, of abuse, whether it be physical or or emotional or spiritual, sometimes that person doesn't want to hear from you. That might cause more harm. And so there, a mediator might might be helpful to help you discern when to do it and how to do it and if to do it. We're going to pause here for a commercial. I'm just kidding. The director of Celebrate Recovery would like to remind you that CR functions as a great mediator in this whole process of reconciliation and recovery, that celebrating when someone comes home is embracing healing and wholeness and this journey toward recovery, Micah is ready and willing (laughs) to serve as that mediator in our step studies and our community here on Wednesday night. If you haven't, and she'll even feed you dinner. If you haven't gotten that overlap yet, 
living into this kind of new life and healing and repentance and reconciliation, y'all, we do that every week on Wednesday nights right here at 715. Making amends, accepting that our consequences have actions. And that last one is start. Start living the promises of recovery. Start living the promises of recovery. I think our passage passage of scripture this morning shows us how a person like the son can work through this sort of human process toward repentance of confessing and then repenting and then accepting consequences. But what this story also gives us is our future hope that we can hold on to as we're doing that hard work of restoring relationships with one another. Because this story also gives us this image of the Father who represents the amazing grace of God, represents this move of God toward us in the work of reconciliation. It's unexpected and shocking in our human terms how the father responds here, running to him, embracing him, welcoming him home. This is a really, I've never thought of this before, but in this sort of shame and honor culture, you would never expect the father to sort of like, just like eagerly and like losing all inhibition and emotion, run, run to the son who has wronged him. I mean, just it was just shocking. It would have been shocking for the people hearing this parable for the first time as well. It makes no sense to welcome him home and to throw a big party. It's symbolic of God's great love when even one sinner repents and returns home. It's unexpected, unmerited, amazing grace. And honestly, sometimes I think it's hard for us to imagine such reconciliation in our world today. And so what I love about this passage is that it helps us as believers kind of hold both of these things. That yes, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And part of that is accepting that some of our actions have consequences. But we hold on to this sort of future coming of the kingdom of God, the justice that we are attempting to pursue of equity and just, where all people have enough, where wrongs have been righted, And yet we know that sometimes in our broken relationships and our broken systems, this pursuit of justice doesn't always achieve the design and the hope that God has for us. And I'm thinking today of when we think about justice in sort of our our worldly context, we immediately think of our criminal justice system that attempts to right wrongs, but that oftentimes causes more harm in how it approaches things like this. That's because it's a system made by humans that are fraught with sin, and it's imperfect. It's a criminal justice system that might ask what laws have been broken, who did it, and what do the offenders deserve? And if you look at our rates of incarceration, or you look at the number of uh, of cases that actually plea out that don't even make it to court because of the system that's so bogged down, Right, if you look at the sort of the traumatic experience of even being incarcerated to begin with, sometimes we don't always zoom out and look at what what happened here, what caused this harm, and what can be done 
to restore these people and relationships. We live in a broken world with broken systems, and so us as Christians, we're trying to navigate that, all in pursuit of God's ideal of justice that looks more like shalom and wholeness and healing and peace. So there are many scholars today that are trying to attempt a reformation of sorts of in pursuit of restorative justice, that instead of asking some of those more simplistic questions, they ask things like, who has been hurt? What are their needs? Whose obligations are these? What are the causes? What's the appropriate process to address the harms? It's asking some of these underlying questions like, why did this happen in the first place? Hurt people hurt people. Sometimes the the broken systems that we live in and these pieces, they're not able to achieve sort of this reconciliation and justice as we are longing for and know we've been called to. So what I appreciate about this passage of scripture is that in this sort of in-between, as we're a, Christ has come, but we are awaiting his return and that establishment of that kingdom, it kind of gives us these tools. Okay, this is how you pursue. This is how you pursue these these restorative, (laughs) this work of reconciliation. But some things and sometimes what we do have earthly consequences as well. Sometimes the harms we commit against one another here, they might break earthly laws that have consequences. And we've got to accept those. We've got to accept those boundaries, but hold on to the work that God is doing to move toward us to restoring all of creation through the gift of Jesus Christ. And here in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate that even more of what that looks like. But in our attempts to live out the ministry reconciliation now, we need to acknowledge that some things may not be reconciled fully until Christ himself returns. And for me, that's sometimes a hard thing to accept. (laughs) We pursue it. We work for it. We, we chase after Jesus toward that kingdom and that vision that we've been given of peace and justice that's coming, of God's justice. And even still, as we do that, we know that some things might not totally be redeemed until Christ himself returns. But I am so thankful for the image of this parable that gives me the hope of that father who's always waiting, who all, who's always running toward us, who's always ready to embrace us and welcome us home. For any sinner who repents, I like to think of Jesus ready to throw a big party. And even so, there are two relationships here that need to be restored. Because if you remember, the older son, he's kind of mad too. (laughs) There's lots to chew on here, lots we can't get into, but the image that I hold on to is that the, the son, the older one, who hears about the party from his servant, doesn't even know what's gone down, gets upset because he's like, what, I've been here this whole time. I've never even gotten so much as a goat to celebrate with my friends. You gave this... This kid, a whole fatted calf, the seat of honor, the party seat. 
There's reconciliation that happens twice here from the father who's willing to cross, cross the threshold to run to his younger son. He's also willing to cross the threshold the second time to go to his older son and to welcome him to the party as well. This radical generosity of restoring the second son is revealed too toward the first one when he says, all that I have is yours. What? That makes no sense. It should have only been half, but now it's awful. All that I have, my son, that I love is yours. The party is not complete until he is there with them as well. And it's this image of love and amazing grace and generosity that we have of God that, friends, we must hold on to as we seek to heal our broken relationships, as we seek to live into what justice can look like today. May we hold on to both in this in-between of the coming kingdom of God, where here we will experience heaven, as our prayer says this morning, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how you reveal yourself to us, for how you never stop pursuing us, for even in challenging passages of scripture, God, that we can sit and hear a new word of hope and encouragement. God, the work that you have called us to, we know can be challenging. Restoring what was broken, we know is hard, but we give, you, we give you thanks that you have given us the tools, but not just that, given us the spirit of Christ who pursues us and calls us to follow your way of righteousness and healing and forgiveness. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Would you continue to work in our lives that we might have the courage that we need to confess our sins, to repent and turn in a different way, to accept consequences for our actions and to make amends to our brothers and sisters, to restore what's been broken, all empowered by the love and spirit of Jesus Christ, who calls us to this very work. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.